Okay, well, thank you, and uh, it's a great pleasure to be here. The, the topic of my talk is uh, the impact of, of Brexit on British politics, which is quite a big subject. The, uh, the consequence of the vote on uh, June the 23rd will take a long time to appear and to be uh, fully understood, and what those consequences are will continue to be contested. Um, not least, I imagine, by uh, future historians be, who will be busy interpreting and reinterpreting what actually uh, happened and what the consequences were. Uh, one of the themes, though, I want to focus on in this talk is uh, how big an event will Brexit actually turn out to be. We think of it at the moment as, a, as this huge event, but are we right to uh, do so? Is it a major watershed in Britain's political and economic development, a revolution. Some uh, of the more enthusiastic leavers are, are comparing it to the glorious revolution of uh, 1688. Uh, or is it only an episode in a continuous process of evolution? Will it actually change very much of substance? Well, the focus of the debate since the, the vote, since the referendum vote, has quickly moved from whether there should be a Brexit at all to what kind of Brexit the UK should seek to achieve. And these dreadful terms, hard and soft Brexit, have entered the political discourse, I fear, never to, uh, never to depart. Um, but it, it would be wrong to, to say that uh, Leavers are all for hard Brexit and Remainers are all for soft Brexit. Um, there are quite a number of Leavers who've actually declared that they favour soft Brexit and have uh, angrily rebuked Nigel Farage and others for interpreting what uh, they meant by their vote for Leave. Philip Johnston in the Daily Telegraph um, also, Christopher Booker are examples of, of, of this. They say they would much prefer a uh, European economic area solution if that was uh, available. On the other hand, we have the, uh, the slogan which the Prime Minister has uh, popularised, Brexit means Brexit, um, which appears almost now to be a new constitutional doctrine, which is that uh, a vote um, which went, was narrowly won by the Leave side, 52 to 48, binds future governments irrevocably in a way which uh, general elections in our constitutional tradition have never been uh, thought to do. But this referendum um, uh, has been interpreted in that manner as though the referendum was fought on a single idea of what Brexit meant. I was quite pleased to see Matthew Elliott in evidence um, for the select committee yesterday uh, saying, actually, no, this wasn't so. He, he never pretended that there was a manifesto. Um, on the other hand, there are many people who have absolutely interpreted what Brexit means. Brexit means £350 million a week for the NHS. It means uh, closed borders or no more immigration or at least uh, 
immigration is only down to 30,000 a year, and it's of course running at the moment at over 300,000 from all parts of the world. There are those who say that Brexit means a turn to global Britain, to uh, unilateral free trade and deregulation. There are others who say that Brexit means a planned economy, trade and capital controls. So there are very many different visions on offer. And our media is still very much in campaign mode. Every bit of news about the economy is spun as either vindicate, as vindicating either the predictions of leave or of remain. And there has continued to be a certain hounding of the experts. Mark Carney has been at the uh, receiving end of quite a lot of this criticism. Um, from, uh, and, and some newspapers, like the Daily Mail, have expressed dissatisfaction that he has, uh, is not going to re resign until 2019. But on the other hand, just imagine what if, uh, if Mark Carney had decided to resign immediately because of the criticism that he's faced, just imagine what uh, the effect would have been on the foreign exchanges. In this debate on what uh, Brexit means, we have the alternative models which were well canvassed during the referendum campaign itself, the European Economic Area, preservation of access to the single market, customs union, sectoral deals involving free movement for workers in those sectors but not universally, uh, WTO rules but then um, a problem of how services are included. And then the two outliers in, in the debate, the, the, those who favour an immediate proclamation of unilateral free trade and those who are seeking a, uh, a new referendum to try and reverse the result of June the 23rd. Now, I think there's a need just to step back a little and just think more broadly about the European issue in British politics. Because it has had an extraordinary salience now over six decades. Um, it's only comparable to the free trade tariff reform debate between 1880 and 1940. There's the same, it's, it's uh, managed to split both parties and destabilize both parties at different times, but the, the, the two main parties. It's like the free trade tariff reform debate, which is going to be discussed more in the next session. It has that ability to fuse together sovereignty, national identity, political economy in uh, uh, very powerful ways. And yet it raises the question of why is this European issue quite so toxic? And why does it arouse quite such passion, uh, not just amongst the political elites, but amongst so many British citizens? In 2001, there was the famous case of the, uh, the metric martyrs, uh, who uh, uh, shopkeepers who uh, um, were taken to court because they refused to uh, advertise what they were saying, selling in metric as well as imperial uh, weights and measures. And the, uh, one of, they, they were um, found guilty by the court, um, but one of them emerged 
from the courtroom to say proudly on the steps of the court, he said, uh, um, uh, we are British, we are not European, as though the two were mutually <laughs> exclusive. But that is the tenor of a considerable part of the debate, the idea that Britain has an exceptionalism and that uh, British national identity is under threat from uh, the Britain's membership of the European Union. And at times, it almost seems that Europe is being cast as uh, Mordor, um, as in Lord of the Rings, and that uh, the uh, and, and indeed Margaret Thatcher partly encouraged that way of thinking when she wrote this is after quite a long time after she uh, left office, but she's, she declared that only bad things had come out of Europe in her lifetime. And that deep cultural hostility, um, at times verging on contempt for Europe, is an important strand in the, the, the six-decade-long debate. Of course, back in the 1960s and 1970s, the Conservatives were the European Party, lest we forget. Uh, Labour were the party of British sovereignty and national identity. Hugh Gateskill, in that famous speech, talked about uh, a thousand years of history and the sacrifice of British national traditions. Tony Benn talked about the need to, to retain parliamentary sovereignty in order to deliver socialism and a planned economy and protect the welfare state. And in the crucial vote in 1971 to approve the European Communities Bill, the measure only passed because of 69 Labour rebels led by Roy Jenkins, which gave Edward Heath his parliamentary majority, because 39 Conservatives, led by Enoch Powell, um, voted against the bill. Howard Wilson was never, never a strong supporter of the EU, but came to pragmatically accept it staged the 1975 referendum when he returned to power, although he, uh, in marked contrast to what David Cameron did this time, Howard Wilson stayed aloof from the uh, referendum campaign, hardly made any intervention in it at all. Uh, he let it be fought by Jenkins, Heath and, and Thorpe, the, the people who were enthusiastic about Europe. A majority, he was well aware that a majority of Labour MPs, trade unions and party members opposed uh, membership of the European community. But almost all the media, um, all the political establishment and the great majority of Conservative voters were for Britain's membership and that carried the day by a two to one uh, margin. Security was as important an argument at that time as, as trade for many Conservatives. The cementing of the Western Alliance, the cohesion of Western Europe in the Cold War, um, as well as the relative weakness of the British economy, the relative strength of the European community. And yet, almost as soon as Britain was uh, a member of the, the European community and um, and, and 
uh, after the referendum had confirmed that status, uh, Britain almost immediately began to be a reluctant partner with its refusal to join the uh, um, economic uh, monetary system under James Callaghan. At that time, Margaret Thatcher was strongly critical of the decision of uh, James Callaghan to stay out of the uh, um, out of what became the ERM. But then we had the complete reversal. The Conservatives became bitterly divided over Europe. Uh, Margaret Thatcher, as Prime Minister, there was a deep ambivalence in her policy. She was the architect, or one of the main architects, of the single market and QMV, but she also was, became a very fierce uh, opponent of EMU and of measures to strengthen supranational elements. And Labour, under Neil Kinnock, came to see the European Union as a safeguard against the dismantling of employment rights and welfare rights in the UK. And a new cosmopolitanism began to grow up and influence Labour um, with an emphasis on multilateralism, interdependence, openness, free movement, the breaking down of borders. One of the things that membership of the European community was supposed to achieve in 1973. It was supposed to have settled the famous question posed by Dean Acheson about Britain had lost an empire but not yet found a role. As far as Edward Heath and that generation of, of uh, leaders of the Conservative Party were concerned, membership of the European community was intended to settle uh, that, uh, that question. But Brexit, of course, reopens it, reopens the question of what that role is going to be. Now, it's true that Britain has always had a relationship with the rest of Europe. It is inescapably uh, part of Europe. But for 500 years since the Reformation, Europe has often been treated in British political discourse as the other against which Britain defines itself. So sorry, Protestantism against Catholicism, liberty against despotism, commercial society against military society, enterprise against bureaucracy. And the European Union has often appeared rather like the uh, Holy Roman Empire, which you remember was neither holy nor an empire, um, a, a, a political association with many overlapping jurisdictions and a weak centre. But now Britain's uh, departure from the European Union reopens the question about where Britain actually will position itself in the future. It reopens questions about Britain's place in Anglo-America, which some people now call the Anglosphere. Um, outside the EU, relationships with the United States and some of the other English-speaking countries will be even more important than they have been in the past. But Britain has always been ambivalent about whether it was primarily part of Anglo-America or part of Europe. And in her, uh, Theresa May, in her um, post-Brexit turn, she has seems to have become once again, uh, uh, seems to have changed her position to become a born-again 
Lever. She certainly cheered Leavers, few of whom actually voted for her or supported her campaign. And she's dismayed Remainers. In her conference, uh, two conference speeches, she, this uh, uh, last month, she said, Brexit is a clear, decisive vote. Britain will be a sovereign nation again. And that means Britain will do what sovereign nations do, determine its own laws, control its own borders. Trade will be secondary. Sovereignty and identity trump interests and political economy. But of course, already she's finding it very hard to deliver that. Uh, she's reaffirmed the target of bringing down the number of migrants to the tens of thousands. But the UK economy remains heavily dependent for its growth on consumer debt, on immigration, and access to the single market. So remove those three props, and the economy may struggle. Falling pound and falling immigration would mean a hard landing for the economy. And there is little fiscal headroom, and there is also a very, currently a very high balance of payments deficit of 7% of GDP. So this is a very difficult background against which to be negotiating um, a uh, uh, negotiating Brexit. And there's a, a further question which concerns the, uh, the union. Um, the, the union, uh, particularly with Scotland, appears once again to be at risk. Scotland and Northern Ireland voted Remain, England and Wales voted Leave, and the SNP is preparing a case for a second referendum. And it's not impossible this time that they could win, although many obstacles remain. Many uh, people who voted no to independence but voted Remain uh, in, for the EU have now switched in Scotland to uh, Yes for independence. And the tide of opinion towards independence may become irresistible if the UK opts for a hard Brexit. The economic case against Scotland leaving the UK remains very strong. But then it was also very strong for the UK leaving the EU. And yet the electorate voted in a different way. And one of the problems with the union is that Theresa May is behaving to Scotland and the other devolved governments as Leavers accused the EU of behaving to the UK. And so there is being set in motion a, uh, um, a movement which may end with the dissolution not just of one union but of two. So finally, back to the question, the is it watershed or evolution? Suppose Remain had won 52-48 instead of lost by that margin. Would Leavers have accepted the result? Clearly they would not. Uh, they would have regarded they'd have come so close that it was worth one more heave. They would have accepted the result no more than yes campaigners in Scotland accepted the vote of a, have accepted the vote of a Scottish referendum. And the focus would have been on the successor to David Cameron in 2019. There would have been a very strong push in the Conservative Party 
to elect a candidate who promised a second referendum. So the question that that raises is, was some kind of Brexit inevitable? Obviously, the vote has brought it forward. But there are those who argue that the crisis in the Eurozone, the crisis in migration, mean that the EU is an, is a, an association which is in deep trouble and may not itself survive, and that at some point, a separation between Britain and the rest of the EU uh, was uh, probable. The EU is failing on competence, failure, its failure to develop as a federal state, and the, uh, the enlargement of the European Union made it cumbersome and bureaucratic. So even before the Brexit vote, the UK was already semi-detached through the opt-outs which, which it had obtained. And part of David Cameron's problem in his negotiations was that, was that there was very little he could ask for since the UK had already been granted key exemptions, Schengen and, and the Euro and the rebate. Could Britain be granted even more and still be a member of the club? The, uh, if, if an emergency break on immigration had been granted, some people say, well, that might have won the referendum. But would it have settled the argument? Again, almost certainly not. So if we go forward five, ten years into the future, will Britons actually notice very much difference? Will the number of immigrants in Britain be any different to what it is now? Will the level of trade and foreign investment uh, be very different? Will the amount of regulation applied externally be very different? There will be some changes. We won't have MEPs. But there may be other deeper continuities. The UK Parliament may have regained its sovereignty, but it's likely to use its sovereignty to bind itself again in many international agreements, as it has done in the past. Will taking back control in 2019 make, people feel, make the people feel that they are in control again? Will sovereign parliaments seek closer association again once the costs of separation are glimpsed? In a parliamentary democracy, demo uh, referendums are a very blunt instrument for getting a settlement that commands the widest consent. But for the moment, we are back seems to me 100 years. In 1919, J.M. Keynes, um, reflecting on the, the Versailles Treaty, wrote, England still stands outside Europe. Europe's voiceless tremors do not reach her. Europe is a part, and England is not of her flesh and body. But Europe is solid with herself. Thank you.